Hi there, everyone. Welcome to episode 33 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, which is the New Zealand podcast on theology, philosophy, biblical studies, social issues, politics, and pretty much anything else that happens to take my fancy at the time. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Now, episode 33, if you've been following along, you will know, is the final episode in the series called In Search of the Soul, part five in the series. Uh, a series which has been on the mind-body problem. Now, it's the longest series that I've ever actually done. So now that I won't be talking about the subject, I'm going to have to come up with a new idea. But I've I've got a couple of, of ideas rattling around, so don't worry. Before I started this series, I thought maybe three episodes would be enough. But as soon as I began, it became clear that three just wasn't going to cut it. So I changed it to four, and now it's grown to five. And even now, after five episodes, when I'm done today, what you've gotten from me and what you'll get today is really just an overview, such as the complexity of the subject. As I've done in each part after the first one, here's a recap of where we've gotten to so far. Part one looked at Platonic or Cartesian dualism, which I think is quite safe to say, as the majority view in the history of the Christian faith. And I told you why I think some of the major philosophical arguments for that view aren't very good. Then we started slowly moving towards physicalism, so sort of along the spectrum from one end to the other. And on that road, we passed emergentism, which is meant to be a kind of halfway house between the two. And then in part three, we looked at physicalism, a position that more and more Christian thinkers are embracing, and not necessarily theological liberals either. In part four, I looked at one final philosophical argument against physicalism, namely the argument that physicalism is incompatible with the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, and I rejected that argument, or at least I said that it's certainly not cut and dry. Now, in part five, where we are now, the final installment, we're going to move away from analytical philosophy altogether, and we're going to move towards biblical studies. So it's not going to be a terribly technical episode as far as philosophy goes at all. It's really going to be a fairly simple Bible study. The last half century and the last couple of decades in particular have seen a major shift in Christian thinking on the biblical teaching about human nature and human destiny. I personally think that the shift has represented a change for the better since it has resulted in Christian readers of the Bible being willing to allow their own philosophical and theological presuppositions, presuppositions that have been handed down to them by tradition or by culture, to be challenged and to examine the biblical material in a fresh way. I think in a more historically fair way, and as a result, our ideas about the biblical portrait of humanity has changed. Today I'm going to look at some of the relevant biblical material and what it can tell us about the theology of the authors, and it might present some surprises. I make no secret of the fact that I agree with the move away from traditional understandings about what the Bible says about human nature. I reject dualism, and so I'm pleased that there is a move afoot in conservative biblical studies to reject dualism as well. So I'm going to present some of the material about what the Bible says on human nature, and I'll be explaining why I agree with the move away from dualism from a biblical point of view. So without further ado, let's go. (laughs) 
as I've indicated on a number of occasions, I hold to a physicalist view of human nature. As a fairly conservative Christian who holds that view, the presupposition that I run into sometimes when other Christians find out what I think is that I must have come to this view by, I don't know, compromising my Christian stance or compromising my commitment to the teaching of the Bible because I want to find a better fit with a modern scientific worldview. Now, this would be convenient for some as a way of sort of dismissing a point of view that they're unhappy about, but it's just not true. When I was maybe 17 years old, before I had even heard of neuroscience, while I was a dyed-in-the-wool young earth creationist, before I had even heard the phrase philosophy of mind, I was challenged to have another look at the biblical teaching on human nature. And I reached the conclusion that what I now call Cartesian dualism, although I wouldn't have known what that term meant at the time, is not biblical, and that the Bible teaches what I now call physicalism. The way that I'm going to approach the biblical material in this episode is in two parts. First, I want to look at the way the Bible uses some important terms like soul and spirit. Then I want to look at some objections uh, about the way that the Bible presents human nature by way of some general descriptions without necessarily using those terms. There's a third issue related to all of this, namely the way that the Bible talks about another issue that has important implications for this subject, namely life after death. That's a big subject, so I'm just going to say a few short things about that because I can't possibly include a satisfactory treatment of that issue in this episode. I think that one of the reasons that some people think the Bible teaches or presupposes a dualistic view of human beings is a cultural reason. In our culture, Thanks to our religious and philosophical heritage in the Western world, and in the Eastern world too, I suppose, we associate dualistic ideas with the word soul and with the word spirit. Those words appear in the Bible, and because of our culture, we think we know what those words mean. So when we find those words in the Bible, we suppose that they carry the meaning that our culture has handed down to us. And we conclude that we have found passages in the Bible that teach dualism, because after all, we know what souls and spirits are, right? By starting out with dualism then, via our culture, we end up finding dualism in the Bible. But the way that the Bible actually uses those words, or, or rather the way that the Bible uses the words in the original languages that have been translated as soul or spirit, those, those examples actually don't encourage us to find dualism in the Bible. In fact, if anything, I think it's, they serve as a reason not to think of those words in a dualistic way when we read Scripture. In any English translation of the Bible that I know of, the first appearance of the word soul is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, as it reads in the King James Version. It's the well-known narrative of the creation of Adam. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, dust of the earth, sorry, I should read what's in front of me rather than what I think it should say, of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. The visual picture here is one of suscitation, not resuscitation, bringing something back to life, but bringing this new creature to life for the first time. God makes a being out of dust and breathes breath into it, and then it comes, obviously, to life. Like a lot of people, I was struck by what is said here and also what was not said. The text here doesn't say that man was given a living soul, even though that's what some people think is going on here which was then added to the material body. In fact, there isn't even a reference here to a body. 
The text says that what was formed out of the dust was actually man. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And once this man started breathing, he became a living soul. He didn't receive one. He is one. That thing that was formed out of the dust of the ground is now called a living soul. I was struck when I first realized that. Now, I'm in two minds about the way the older versions translate Genesis 2-7. Like, I was reading from the King James then, but other older versions use the word soul here as well. And I'm in two minds about that. On the one hand, I'm pleased that they use the word soul because it informs the reader that in the mind of the person who wrote this, the Hebrew word translated soul, which by the way is nefesh, does not refer to an immaterial substance that is the true man residing within a body. It clearly doesn't mean that here. It shows the reader, you know, using the English word soul in this verse, shows the reader that the writer thought that this physical thing made, as it were, out of the dust, actually is a living soul. So that's that's one reason why I'm glad that the older versions did use the word soul. But on the other hand, it troubles me. On the other hand, I wish they'd never used the word soul here because they used that word so selectively in a way that gives a seriously misleading impression. The innocent reader with no knowledge of biblical Hebrew will read through Genesis chapter 1 and then into Genesis chapter 2 and then here at verse 7 they will think that this is the very first time this word has been used in the Bible to describe the creation of Adam. Now that could easily contribute to the impression that all the animals created beforehand are different because they either don't have souls or are not souls. But here, human beings are depicted as being different because this is the first creature who has a soul or who is a soul. Now none of that's true, or at least none of that is correctly based on the early chapters of Genesis. The Hebrew word nefesh has already appeared in Genesis in chapter 1. In verses 20 and 24, that same word, nefesh, is used to refer to sea creatures and land animals. And now in Genesis 2.7, it's used again of another creature, man. It's used again to refer to the animals that God presented to Adam to name. But why did the translators not translate the word as soul in all of these cases? If they're going to use it at all, why not use it consistently? That they chose not to is, I think, perhaps best explained by their dualistic theology. It was important to them to use the word soul when referring to humans, but not when referring to other creatures. This is why, on the whole, I think the modern versions get it right. When they translated Genesis 2-7 to say that man became a living creature or a living being, it'll vary depending on which version you're reading. And then they use that same word for the other instances of Nephesh in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So they call them creatures or beings or what have you. At least it's consistent, and I think that's probably the best way to go. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham, the eminent Hebrew scholar, had this to say in his commentary on Genesis when discussing Genesis 2-7 and this word nefesh. He says, and I quote, Given the other uses of the phrase nefesh chaya, by the way, that's living creature, in Genesis 1, 2, and 9, it seems unlikely that in 2 verse 7, man became a living creature, it means any more than the TEV, that's today's English version, the TEV rendering, and the man began to live. By blowing on the inanimate body made from the earth, God made man come alive. It is not man's possession of the breath of life or his status as a living creature that differentiates him from the animals. Animals are described in exactly the same terms. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 affirms the uniqueness of man 
by stating that man alone is made in God's image and by giving man authority over the animals. End quote. This word nefesh, although translated soul every now and then, is actually never used in a way that implies dualism. A lot of the time it is translated creature when referring to any kind of animal. In Genesis 9, Noah is told to take all the living creatures into the ark. That's that word nephesh there. The phrase there is the same as the living creature that God made from the dust in Genesis 2.7. The word is also quite often uh, used to refer to the life of an animal or a human. In Genesis 9, God says that the life of an animal is in the blood, and the word life there is nephesh. When Lot and his family were told to escape from Sodom, they were told to run for their lives, where lives was translated from nephesh. Perhaps most commonly of all, the word is just used as a kind of personal pronoun, where my soul just means me, his soul means him, your soul just means you, and so on. If my soul delights in something, then that's just another way of saying that I delight in it. Sometimes the word in the plural is used in the way that we would use the word people. In Genesis, sorry, not Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 12.4, in the instructions for preparing the Passover, people are told to take enough meat for all the souls, that is, all the nephesh, all the people who live in the house. In Genesis 46, when the writer is listing all the people who went with Joseph to Egypt, the writer continually refers to the number of nephesh. So it's a very general word for creatures, for lives, for animals, uh, as a pronoun representing one being or more beings. Notice that in the modern versions of the Bible, there are considerably fewer examples of the word nephesh being translated as soul. Even though nephesh is one of the most common words in the Hebrew Bible, according to Wenham, the word soul is fairly uncommon in modern versions. Now that's because the word does just refer to people or creatures, where it functions like a pronoun. So modern translators quite correctly just translate it as people or something else along those lines. In fact, so far is this word from referring referring to anything like a Cartesian or Platonic immaterial immortal soul that it's even used to refer to a person after he is dead, not as a ghost, but as a corpse. In Numbers chapter 9, for instance, some people are unclean and they cannot take part in the Passover because they have touched a nephesh muth, uh, which is a dead nephesh or a dead creature or a dead soul. When God made man alive, he became a nephesh chaya, a living soul, and when man dies, his body is a dead soul, or better stated, a dead creature. And this dead soul or dead creature can be physically touched with the hands. So I'm just trying to stress the way that this word is so not used in a dualistic way in the Old Testament. The New Testament word translated as soul in the Greek is suke. Now this word is, is certainly capable of being used in a Cartesian or Platonic sense. I mean, after all, Plato's work was written in Greek and he uses this word in precisely that sense. But not every person who used the word held the same view as Plato. There were Greek speakers like the Epicureans who, if you know anything about them, you'll know that they expressly denied Plato's view of the soul. So it doesn't necessarily mean that. In fact, when we look at the way the New Testament uses the word, we see that there's really no difference from how the Old Testament uses the word nephesh. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word nephesh is translated into this Greek word suke. It basically means person or creature or various aspects of the person or creature, just as 
the Hebrew word did in the Old Testament. One of the most common ways that the New Testament uses the word is to mean life. In Matthew 2.20, when Herod wanted to kill the baby Jesus, we learn that he was seeking the baby's suke. In Matthew 10.39, Jesus taught that those who lose their life, their suke, for his sake, will ultimately find it. He wasn't saying, you know, you should give up your soul in the service of me. He's saying, you know, if you lose your life for my sake, then you will ultimately find it. In John 10, 11, Jesus said that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life, suke, for the sheep. But likewise, the word is often used, just like nephesh in the Old Testament, to refer to just a person as a being. In Acts 27, 37, we read, uh, quote, and we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16, sorry, 203 score and 16 souls, or sukai. In Romans 13, when Paul is urging people to obey the governing authorities, he says, let every soul, every suke, be subject unto the higher powers. Now, I'm not going to multiply examples. Just You can check it if you don't trust me, but just accept my summary claim that the New Testament doesn't introduce any new usage of the word that gets translated as soul. There are two instances of the word soul in the King James Version of the New Testament that some people think teaches something different from all of this and actually does refer to immaterial ghosts of people who have died. So I want to address those just briefly. The first instance is Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 27 when Peter is connecting the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth with Psalm 16 on the day of Pentecost. He's giving his talk to all the people. He quotes a line from that psalm and that quotation in the King James Version reads, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. End quote. Now, if you're a dualist who believes in an underworld called hell and an immortal thing called a soul, then it's pretty obvious how you're going to interpret this. You're going to say that someone's soul has left their body and gone to the underworld of hell, and God is going to deliver them out of that place. Now, the first thing we need to realize is that my soul here is not like saying my hand or my ear, referring to a piece of me. It's an idiomatic way of referring to me. If you know your Old Testament, you'll realize this straight away. And hell is a, a terrible way of translating the underlying Greek word here. The word is Hades. And in the psalm being quoted, it is the Hebrew word Sheol. In context, in Acts chapter 2, it only means grave. The point that Peter is making is that the psalmist says that he would not be abandoned to the grave. And then Peter says, and look what happened to Jesus. He didn't stay in the grave, but he rose out of it. I think the New International Version is on the mark. I don't often say that, but sometimes it is. When it translates this verse to say, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, there's no suggestion of dualism in there because it accurately con conveys the idea that was present in the original language. The verse uses an old Hebrew device called a parallelism, where the same idea is expressed twice in different phraseology. Jesus not being left lying in the grave is the same thing as Jesus not being allowed to see decay or to rot. We can tell that this is what the text means because immediately after quoting from this psalm attributed to David, Peter says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is still here to this day. 
So he has not been, end quote, so he's not been delivered from the grave. David hasn't come out of his grave. He was buried. He's still in his grave, and his grave is right here. See, look. Jesus, however, is no longer in the grave, and that is exactly what this verse can be interpreted to mean. This is one more reason that I have no time for the so-called King James-only movement, telling us that the King James Version is the only faithful translation. The fact is, sometimes... There are lots of good things about the King James and its translational method, but sometimes the translation choices in that old version were very poor, and they end up perpetuating misunderstandings about what biblical texts mean. The other instance of Suke in the New Testament that some people think implies dualism is in the book of Revelation. Actually, there are two instances, but they are nearly identical. They are Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 20, Verse 4. Here they are now. The first one says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And Revelation 20, verse 4 is very similar. The writer says, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and for, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. End quote. The great early 20th century scholar of apocalyptic literature, R.H. Charles, noted of John that in the book of Revelation, quote, while he writes in Greek, he thinks in Hebrew, and the thought has a naturally, sorry, the thought has naturally affected the vehicle of expression, end quote. In Old Testament Hebrew, to talk about someone's soul was to talk about them. Do a word search for the phrase, the soul of, or the souls of. In the Old Testament, use the King James Version because that uses the word soul more than any other translation. The phrase is used about 30 times in this way. Here are just a few examples. Genesis 46 verse 27 says, All the souls of the house of Jacob, so the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. 1 Samuel 18.1 And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So he loved him as himself. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3 The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. Obviously the idea is not that God will let their body be hungry, but not their soul. The soul of the righteous just means the righteous. God would not let the righteous famish. So when he says the soul of the righteous, he means the righteous. I could multiply examples. Just check them yourself. This is an idiomatic way of referring to a person. It is not a way, at least not as far as biblical usage is concerned, it is not a way of picking out and referring to just a part of a person. That's a mistake. For John to say that he saw the souls of those who were killed is exactly the same as you or me saying that we saw those who had been killed. These are not ghosts. These are the people being seen in a vision, people who in real life had been killed, but who, so the vision tells us, will one day be avenged. Apocalyptic imagery is so unique that it's hard for me to come up with a good modern parallel to the incident, 
But I think this one kind of works. Imagine that your close friend was murdered. His murderer is now on trial, and you're standing there looking at a photograph of your friend. Your friend that you can see in the photo turns to you and says, How long? How long until my killer is brought to justice? And you say to him, It won't be long now. He's on trial. Now, that's not literally true. I mean, that scenario can't literally happen because your friend is dead and can't ask you that. But then neither is the stuff that makes up an apocalyptic vision literally true either. The point is you're not seeing a ghost. You're seeing your friend as though he were alive, asking you when things will be put right, even though in reality he's dead. Similarly, in the vision, John sees those who had been unjustly killed. He sees them alive, pleading for justice. On the whole, I think that it's not particularly controversial to say that no plausible biblical case for dualism could ever be constructed simply on the basis of the way in which the English word soul is used in our translations. I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that pretty much any New Testament or Old Testament scholar would grant that. So if you want to build a biblical case for dualism, you need a lot more than that. Okay, so what about the word spirit, you might say? The other word that is used by dualists when referring to that immaterial mind that is distinct from our body, and in principle at least, separable from our body, is the word spirit. Now just as with the English word soul, the words in the original languages of the Bible that are translated as spirit appear many more times than we might realize at first, because they are of, they're often there, but not translated as spirit. When it comes to the human spirit, our English translations give the impression that the word doesn't appear until Genesis 41, in verse 8, during the famous account of the life of Joseph. Pharaoh has a confusing dream, and we read that when he woke up in the morning, his spirit was troubled, which I just think means that his mind or his heart was troubled. But actually, that's not the first reference to the human spirit, or at least it's not the first time that the Hebrew words that are translated spirit occur in reference to human beings. There are a couple of Hebrew words translated as spirit. They are ruach and neshama. They, they are words that are capable of being used in more or less the same way. I think that's a fair observation. They can both comfortably be used anywhere within a shared range of meaning. Although within that range of meaning, ruach tends to dominate more in one area and neshama tends to be used more in another way, as we'll see in a moment. But those are only tendencies and not hard rules. Here are some examples of the way that these words are used. The first time either of these words is used is in Genesis chapter 1, during the creation story. In verse 2, most modern versions, like the older English versions, say something along the lines of, And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. If you happen to be using an a NRSV, a New Revised Standard Version, you'll notice something different because it says a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, it's not that the NRSV was based on different manuscripts with different Hebrew words or anything like that. It's just an example of an ambiguity caused by a Hebrew word that has a range of meaning. This is that word ruach that I referred to earlier. The same word can mean a range of things from the personal spirit of God to the power of the wind. We could be here for a while if we list all the uses of this word, so here are just a few to illustrate the point. In Genesis 3.8, Adam and Eve 
heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word cool there, or in some versions breeze, is the word ruach, because it can mean breeze. In Genesis 8 verse 1, uh, we read that God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now that word wind, again, ruach. In Genesis 26 verse 34, uh, we read that Esau's choice of wives was a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. The word mind there is ruach, quite different from wind, obviously. Genesis 5.14 talks about the spirit of jealousy. Again, that it's ruach, the spirit of jealousy that comes upon a man who suspects his wife of having an affair. Job 19.17, one of my favorite, he says, My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stink to the children of my own mother. The word breath there is ruach, so it's physically his breath that smells bad. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That word spirit there is ruach. Psalm 104, one of my favorite psalms, is a wonderful description of God's marvelous works in the way that God created and provides for all creatures, beast and man. And in verse 28 we find this, quote, You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. Now the word for spirit and breath there, both the breath of the creatures and the spirit of God, is both ruach there. There's a very fine distinction between the spirit of God, that it comes from God, and the breath of life, the, the sustaining power that we have, that we will give back to God when we die. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, ruach, before a fall. Now, I could go on, I won't. You can look up more examples if you like. The word refers to breath, to wind, to a person's thoughts, to their attitude, and to the spirit of God. may even be capable of further uses than that. I'm using all these examples and encouraging you to check for yourself so you can see what I'm saying about the biblical range of meaning before we turn to a couple of examples that might be seen by a few as suggesting dualism. Before I get to that point, let's look at the other Hebrew word translated as spirit in the Old Testament, neshama. Let's look at how that word gets used. Genesis 2.7 is a verse that we've already seen when discussing the meaning of soul. When God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life when creating man, that word for breath is neshama. We've already noted that the word ruach is also used in the phrase breath of life phrase, breath of life elsewhere when talking about humans and animals, showing the way that the two words can be used interchangeably. It's interesting in some places to see the way that the word ruach and neshama are both used in the same verse in parallelisms that express the same idea. Have a look at Job 27.3, which says, quote, All the while my breath, neshama, is in me, and the spirit, ruach, of God is in my nostrils. Do you see the way in which there's a fuzzy line here, and I've mentioned this just recently, a fuzzy line between the life that courses through our body, our actual breath that we breathe, and the Spirit of God providentially keeping us alive. We see it again in Job chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where he says, and I quote, If he set his heart upon man, and if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, both ruach and neshama are used there, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. Proverbs 20 verse 27 says, 
The spirit of a man, that's neshama, is the candle of the Lord, searching the inward parts of the belly. Here's a reference to the human spirit or mind which knows a man's inward thoughts. In the New Testament, there's just one Greek word translated spirit, and so it is used to cover both neshama and ruach, which were pretty similar anyway. They may as well, I think, not everyone will agree, but I think they may as well have just been one word anyway. Uh, that Greek word is pneuma. It should come as no surprise that when we read through the examples of this word in the New Testament, it's like reading the combined list of ruach and neshama in the Old Testament. It refers most often to the Spirit of God. It sometimes refers to unclean spirits, although that, incidentally, is not something you see in the Old Testament, but not for linguistic reasons. The whole phenomenon of demonic possession doesn't seem to rear its head in the Old Testament. Uh, also, the word pneuma can uh, just as easily refer to the wind as it does in John 3, 8. You know, the wind blows wherever it wills, and the Spirit of God is just like that as well. Uh, the, term, the term ex nusen, for, uh, referring to expiring or breathing one's last, or, or you know, breathing out your last breath as Jesus did on the cross, uh, appears in Luke 23, 46. The word also refers to a person's mind or thoughts, as it does in John 13, 21. So I'll stop that survey, or I'll never get onto any other subjects. My point is just that the presence of Greek words like soul or spirit certainly don't require us to start thinking like dualists. It's not that physicalists don't believe in souls or spirits in the biblical sense of those words. We just don't think that those things are platonic or immaterial immortal entities. Certainly in the Greek religious and philosophical world that existed alongside biblical culture, these words, noticeably the Greek word suke or psyche, depending on which spelling you're familiar with, some, but not all, prominent thinkers clearly use these words in a way uh, to affirm dualism, to say that the suke is the conscious, immaterial, immortal self inhabiting a body for a short while and then leaving again just as it came, living on as the conscious self without a body. The biblical writers were easily capable of borrowing turns of phrase from plenty of places to show that this is what they meant by those terms, but they never did. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You might be thinking that there are some counterexamples. I'm aware of two examples where the word spirit appears in our English Bibles where some people think that they can see dualism peeping through the text. The first is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Referring to death, we read that, quote, The dust shall return to the earth from whence it came, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. End quote. The thought that some Christians believe is lying behind this verse is that at death the person survives as a spirit, the word here is ruach, while the body that their spirit once lived in decays. If you've been taking in all the examples that we've looked at, however, you'll already see why this does not work. You'll know already, for example, that the combination of dust and the breath of life is a common way of representing living creatures with no thought of dualism whatsoever. All creatures, whether human or animal, are said to have the spirit on loan, as it were, from God, and when God takes it back, then all of us, human or otherwise, return to the dust. In those other examples, we saw that it was not our bodies that are said to return to the dust. Rather, just like Psalm 104 or Job 4 tell us, man returns to the dust when God takes his spirit back. It's like God told Adam, 
you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the idea of a spirit returning to God is a common one in many verses that plainly don't teach dualism. Rather than the idea of persistence and survival, what we are actually seeing in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 here is undoing. Just read this verse alongside Genesis 2-7. There God took the dust, added the breath of life, and made a living soul. Here those components are taken apart, and the living soul is no more. In fact, in the verse immediately prior to this, in verse 6, there are a number of metaphors that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses for death as well. Immediately before he gets to the one about the dust returning to the earth and the spirit going back to God, he talks about death where the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and so forth. So the idea that he's trying to express about death is not one of survival, but one of breakdown, destruction, the end. That's clearly what he's getting at when you take the context into account. What's more, and I don't think that many Christians who use this verse to prove dualism have actually noticed this. This verse uses the word return. The dust will return to the earth, and the spirit will return to God. Now, okay, we can make sense of the physical matter that we are made of going back into the earth where it once was, If you believe that this is a freak occurrence of the word spirit in the Old Testament and that in this unique case it refers to an immaterial undying soul, then you're in a pickle if you're a Christian. Because just like the dust, this thing is returning to the place where it existed before the person was created. And now if you're a dualist and you're using the verse this way, you've got to affirm a doctrine called the pre-existence of the soul. The idea is that you existed in a disembodied form in heaven or somewhere with God before your body was created, and that when the time came for God to make you, you left wherever you were and entered this body that God had made. The trouble is, Christian dualists don't believe anything like that, so they just can't afford theologically to use Ecclesiastes 12.7 in this way. The second example of the word spirit, where some think that it implies dualism, is, I think, a bit more interesting. There's an account in the first book of Samuel where King Saul visits a medium, or more literally, the ESV and the NIV aren't very literal at this point, he visits a woman who has a familiar spirit. Now the word for spirit here is ov in Hebrew, which has a special meaning and only refers to something like a familiar spirit, or something like what a modern spiritualist might call a spirit guide. In the Bible, the word is only ever associated with witchcraft, necromancy, occult practices, and so on. If I were a certain type of Christian, I'd say there were demons, but I'm more inclined to think that it refers to the imaginary spirit friends of some crackpots. Anyway, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul visits a woman with a familiar spirit. God has rejected Saul and is not speaking to him. He's not revealing his thoughts or his plans to him any longer, whether in dreams or visions or by the prophets. So Saul thinks that he can get around this by having this woman talk to her spirit and get a message from the prophet Samuel, who was dead. The woman says that she saw a god coming up out of the earth. The New International Version says spirit here, which is where some people get the idea that this is a spirit of Samuel. But this is a terrible translation. The word is Elohim, which means God. The, this woman sees a God coming up out of the earth, and the God looks like an old man wrapped in a mantle or a robe. Now, if this is Samuel, 
then it sounds like he looked suspiciously like a physical being coming up from exactly the place where a physicalist thinks that he would have been. I guess one question I have is what a dualist really thinks was happening here. Do they think that things exist, not souls or spirits, that's not a biblical way of thinking about those terms, but something, that there is something of us that exists after death, clothed with bodily dimensions, looking like old people, or whatever age we were when we died, I don't know, dwelling in the earth and capable of being summoned at will? Well, probably not. In fact, I've yet to meet a Christian who believes that at all. What Samuel says here only makes it worse worse for dualism because he says, and I quote, Why have you disturbed me, bringing me up? Now, this is just the kind of thing you might expect if Samuel had been dead, sleeping, as it were, in his grave prior to being summoned here. According to Ralph Klein, in the Word Biblical Commentary on 1 Samuel, the verb tagaz, which is translated disturb here, is actually used outside of the Old Testament to indicate tomb violation, you know, taking a body out of its tomb. Now, I may as well just say what I think is going on here. I think that it's a miracle, and in particular, I think that Samuel has literally been brought back from the dead. This isn't communication with a dead person. This is a miraculous communication with a living person who was dead. I could be wrong, but that's what I think is going on here. I don't think it's a ghost. I don't think it's an immaterial spirit. This would actually be invisible anyway and certainly wouldn't be dressed. But the real physical being called Samuel was present. That's what I think. I can't be dogmatic. It could just as easily have been God speaking to Saul through a vision of Samuel. That works fine. In fact, some, and I don't mean far out people either, some relatively mainstream biblical commentators have even suggested that this was a demonic visitation and God was judging Samuel in this way via a demonic visitor. Now, I don't share that view, but it might be correct. As I say, I can't be certain. I like to take the approach that if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims, etc., then it's probably a duck. This looked like Samuel had been raised from the dead. He was physically present. He was visible. He was clothed. He looked like an old man. So that's what I think probably happened. I don't think that there is any real evidence of dualism here just because there is a variety of possibilities about what might be correct. I don't think there's evidence of dualism, unless you count the necromancer's false belief that she could communicate with ghosts as evidence. And I don't count that as evidence, because I frankly don't think that's true. Notice that these two counterexamples, namely Ecclesiastes 12.7 and the encounter with Samuel at Endor, especially the second example, are not rebuttals. I don't mean they're failed rebuttals. They're not even attempts at rebuttals. They are not responses that say, look, Glenn, look at the text that you've used to show the biblical view of human nature, the human soul, or the human spirit. I want to show you, Glenn, how you are misusing and misunderstanding them. Here's what they really mean. That would be a rebuttal. It's where you reply directly to the evidence that is presented to you. Now, these aren't like that. They are counterexamples. They basically say, look, I can't rebut your exegesis of all these passages, these dozens of texts that you have here. But hey, look at these other passages that aren't about human nature, but rather say something about life after death. They pose problems for you, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for doing that. It's not always illegitimate, but we've got to be careful. In these two examples where some people argue for dualism on the basis of these two texts, I actually think that the tail is wagging the dog. 
things are being done backwards. Ecclesiastes 12.7 about the dust and the spirit can only be a counterexample to the view that I've been presenting if the word spirit there does refer to an immortal soul. If it doesn't, then it's not even a counterexample, let alone a rebuttal. And to assume that it is a counterexample just begs the question by assuming dualism and importing it into the text. Uh, similarly, the example of Samuel at Endor bugs me because if you want to build up a biblical theology of human nature, you really need to use passages of the Bible that speak about human nature, not obscure and strange events that are subject to multiple possible explanations. Stated differently, and I think this is a, a, a principle of biblical interpretation that a number of people appeal to, and rightly so. We should let the clear texts interpret the unusual and unclear texts rather than the other way around. This applies all the more when people use the text in 1 Peter, for example, about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, a passage that I won't go into here because I'll have plenty, of, plenty to say about that in a future podcast or maybe a blog entry on the traditional or at least the Catholic doctrine of the descent of Christ into hell, a doctrine that I think is just not true and not biblical. These two counterexamples are obviously connected to the issue of life after death. I've said something about this in a previous podcast episode, episode 23, called Imagine There's No Heaven, where I talked about the way that the heaven-centered Christian concepts of an afterlife deviate from the biblical emphasis on the resurrection of the dead, the biblical view of human nature that I have painted is not compatible with the commonplace view that when we die, we live on as souls or spirits and go to heaven or hell, or someplace else like purgatory. What I've said is not compatible with that. However, I realize that there are some biblical passages, actually no more than a few, in my opinion, that some Christians believe teach something else, and which could plausibly be used that way. I think three texts bear the entire load of this belief. Firstly, the story that Jesus told about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Secondly, Jesus promised to the criminal on the cross that they would be together in paradise. Thirdly, Paul's comment about being absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, I actually think that there is a very plausible way of reading these texts, just a surface reading for that matter, nothing in depth, whereby they don't offer any support for dualism. However, I am unsatisfied with those dualists who just quote the verses and leave it there, as though the truth of their position on these verses is just self-evident. And unfortunately, I think it's a fair observation that virtually all Christian dualists who use these texts do precisely that. They quote the verse and say, well, how about that? As though their interpretation of the passage is just the obvious one. Now, because I'm unsatisfied with that from other people, I don't want to offer you the same and just leave it there. So I'm going to put a serious treatment of these passages together in the future. I'm going to put it off for now. And in a future podcast episode, I will devote it to the question of what the Bible teaches about the intermediate state, that period between death and resurrection. So I'm afraid you're going to have to wait. But it's better than taking a hasty approach to the text. If you really want a hasty response, here's roughly what I think of those texts. Although, as I said, I will say more in the future. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is not a true story. It's not meant to tell us about the afterlife, but instead is about the attitude of the rich to the poor and is probably based on a rabbinical story with a different outcome. Jesus' words to the criminal on the cross reflect exactly what a physicalist hopes for at death, namely the immediate experience of God's presence in the world to come with no waiting period in between. 
Also, there's a potential issue with the way that verse is translated, which will require some explanation. Paul's comment about being absent from the body and present with the Lord, I think, is the only genuine problem text for physicalism in the New Testament. And the explanation lies in the context. Throughout the passage, Paul's hope is for a new body, not to have no body at all. In fact, using the tent metaphor, he explicitly says that he does not wish to be unclothed or without a body, but rather that, quote, mortality would be swallowed up by life, end quote, which is practically copied and pasted from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that this is exactly what would happen at the resurrection. Now that's really simplified. It's a summary. And as I said, I will do a future podcast episode on the intermediate state and what the Bible has to say about it, where I'll say more about these passages and why I make of them what I do. It needs to be said that I'm not claiming that the biblical writers or those who were in the audience of the biblical writers when they first wrote were unfamiliar with dualism. Of course they weren't. First century Judaism was not a monolith of thought. It was very diverse. At one end of the spectrum were the Sadducees who denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied the immortality of the soul. They denied the resurrection, so they ruled out an afterlife altogether. So they were sad, you see. Thank you. They restricted the the canon of their holy books to just the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That, by the way, is why Jesus, when he was debating the Sadducees, sought to prove the resurrection of the dead by quoting God's words to Moses in the Torah, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus said, well, God is the God of the living and not the dead, so they can't be gone for good. The resurrection must be true after all. By using the Torah... He was appealing to an authority that they accepted since it would have done no good to quote, say, Daniel. Then you had the Pharisees. So there's the Sadducees and it's also the Pharisees who swung in the opposite direction. Not only did they accept the entire Old Testament that we now have, they added to that the traditions of the rabbis, the kind of teaching that would have become embodied in the Talmud, for example. Their faith was eclectic in this regard incorporating theology that was not taught in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Many of them adopted Persian beliefs and more prominently Greek beliefs since Judaism had spread throughout the Hellenistical Greek-speaking world. It's not surprising, therefore, that some of them would have taught some pretty far-out things, perhaps even reincarnation. I mean, there is a, a Jewish tradition of believing in what's called Gilgal Nishamut, you look it up if you don't believe me. There is a Jewish tradition of teaching reincarnation, but they would have taught all sorts of things, um, not monolithically again, but there would have been considerable diversity among them. Most of them would have been staunchly dualistic, and many of them had developed some truly bizarre uh, views of hell and the underworld and the afterlife. I mean, just look up some of the uh, mystical Jewish literature, for example, to see what I mean. But the point is there was a diversity of views that existed then. And first century Christianity would have been very familiar with dualism, just as it was familiar with physicalism. But in spite of the familiarity that Jews and early Christians had with dualism, the clear dualistic theology and use of language that you find in the Greek world or in most parts of the pagan world of the time in the first century doesn't appear in the writings of the Old and New Testament, although it easily could have had they wished to express the idea. Some Christian theologians... Dualists, needless to say, have little time for the strong distinction that some, like me, 
draw between the strong dualism of the Greek or pagan world in the first century and the holistic view advocated in the Bible. I think that such distaste is somewhat self-serving. The fact is, such a distinction really exists. If you don't believe me, just pick up a copy of Plato's work, Phaedrus. Read about the way that he says the soul is immortal, immaterial, happy when it leaves the body and enters a better state, and so on. Just read it for yourself. Then turn theologically 180 degrees and read what the Bible says about the same words. It was made from the dust. The soul was made from the dust. It is held in life by the breath of God. It is an earthly, physical thing that can eat, sleep, and die. The contrast is just huge. It's obvious. Now, I know that there is a worry for some readers of the Bible that if we give up dualism, if we admit that we actually don't see it taught in the Bible, if we allow the Bible to speak, in other words, and if we embrace anything like what philosophers call physicalism, then we might be giving up that magical or special element of what it is to be human. I have two things to say about that. The first thing is good. We need to give up that magical element. We're not little gods. We are creatures made by God. We need to give up that hubris that tries to see human beings as something more than we are. We need the humility that comes with the part. What does the Bible actually say about this worry? It pulls no punches as in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, which says, I'm quoting from the NIV, Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? So that's actually, that's a slap in the face that we need, as a matter of fact. So I make no apology for that. But the second thing to say is this. This is the wrong way. This is not the right way to think of human dignity. Our value and our dignity does not consist of Rather, it does not consist in what we are made of, but what we are made for. The Bible doesn't say that we are made out of anything that the animals aren't made out of. In fact, it says that we are made out of exactly the same stuff. But we are made for things that they were not made for. We are made in God's image for a relationship with God. It's the fact that we have this capacity and that God chooses to make himself known to us that dignifies humanity more than could being made from any particular substance dignify us. The worry that we need to have immaterial, immortal souls in order to have the right kind of significance seems to me to fall headlong into the areas of pagan Greek thought, which reared its head in a big way in the Gnostic movements that troubled early Christianity. That line of thought was that there's something bad, there's something wrong or demeaning or not all that good about being a physical being, because physical things, well, they're kind of vulgar and worthless, whereas invisible spiritual realities were pure and good. I think the very earthy, physicalist, biblical worldview is a powerful antidote to this way of thinking. God made us as physical beings, and God is able to say it is very good. And even after the effects of sin and death, God will resurrect us as physical beings, and there is nothing deficient about a physical being. It lacks no other part that is needed to make it a real person. It doesn't need any you know, add-ons or extras. It is whole already. Realizing, as I do, that nobody can do justice to the subject in the short time that I've spent on it today, I'm going to draw to a close. Hopefully, at very least, I've given you something to think about, as I noted, this subject touches on some other subjects that need a separate discussion. The traditional doctrine of the descent of Christ into hell, 
a further discussion on what the Bible teaches about the intermediate state, these will come up. Trust me, they will. I'm not copying out. They will come up in future blogs and podcasts. But now it is time to draw this five-part series to a close. The next episode will be about something all new. I haven't yet decided what that will be. But do keep your eye on the blog at www.beretta-online.com. I will let you know as soon as I know. Maybe it'll be something a bit more lighthearted to compensate for some of the intensity of the series that is just finished. Maybe it won't be. We will see. In any event, please come back next time, please. I'm desperate. (laughs) And bring a friend. Until then, this is Glenn Peoples saying, until then, and thus ends another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!